Welcome to Changeable. This is episode number 263, Terror Management. You're tuned in to Changeable with Dr. Amy Johnson. Changeable podcast is all about breaking habits, ending anxiety, and the ironic way change really works. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey there, welcome back to Changeable. You might be wondering what the heck an episode with the title Terror Management is going to be all about. Um, Because we don't tend to talk too much about managing emotions like terror or anything uh, here on this podcast. But what terror management is, it's actually a theory in psychology that um, was something I kind of kind of studied back in the day. But I want to share it with you and kind of look at it from a wider perspective, given the things that we do talk about here on Changeable and, and how it looks kind of in that psychological sense and through that lens, but also from a much wider lens. So basically, terror management theory um, says that all humans are going to die. Our body will die, at least. You know, all of us who, well, the feeling like a separate self and like you are this body and you have a body and you have a life, that will end. And that that is inherently, according to these researchers, it is inherently anxiety producing and kind of kind of um, creates a, a bit of a dissonance for people. Like we identify with this body and who we think we are and we don't want to die yet. It's absolutely a thousand percent inevitable that we're going to die. So that brings up some level of anxiety. Now we could argue that, of course, right? Different different levels of anxiety, some people more than others, maybe everyone for moments. Anxiety just shows up for everybody anyway. It doesn't really matter. For the sake of this conversation, that's kind of what these researchers are are going with. So there's this dissonance. I'm a me, I'm alive, I, I like being alive, presumably, and yet I'm going to die. And when thoughts of death or one's own death or mortality is brought to light, is kind of activated for someone somewhere in their mind, consciously or not consciously, what they found is that we do certain things and we see things in particular ways as a way of kind of coping with that, with that anxiety. So, for example, um, what what they might do is activate thoughts of death in subjects. And we did this, I personally didn't do it around terror management, but I did it around all kinds of other topics where we would bring college student subjects into our lab and we'd activate whatever we were going to activate. So in this case, it was thoughts of death. And, and that might happen in a conscious way. So you could have a subject come in and just, you know, talk about their own death or maybe read a story about someone's death, which is just kind of bringing bringing death to mind. Or you could do it in a more subliminal way, which we did a lot in the lab that I worked in around various things, um, which is kind of cool. You'd put them in front of a computer usually and show them like a series of images, but at a very, very high speed behind in a sense, kind of the images that they thought they were seeing would be like a corpse or the word death or something like that. So you'd ask them and they'd say, oh, I saw a bunch of pictures and they were of puppies and fields and butterflies. But 
we we knew that we were putting in these other images and words kind of in a way that they would be perceived on some level. So once you activate death, whatever it was for them, uh, then you look at all kinds of other things. And of course, you have a group that doesn't have death activated so that you can compare the two. And so basically what terror management theorists found was that when people's death was made salient, their mortality was made salient to them. And I think, I don't know the research that well, but I think particularly when there was a a higher degree of anxiety around that. So everyone's going to experience a different level of anxiety thinking about their own death, obviously. So I think it was really about not just when death was activated, but when people were anxious in the face of that. What they found was that identity whatever that means in all kinds of different ways, but personal identity was super important. And it was kind of um, clung to in a way like a safety net. People would, people would really, really focus on their themselves and who they are and where they came from and things like meaning and purpose. And, uh, you know, even aspects of identity that we don't, we may not think that much of like this is my this is my role in my career or this is my birth order in my family like i'm the oldest or i'm the youngest you know the average person doesn't probably doesn't care too much about those things it's not a major part of your identity but when your death was activated when the fact that you're going to die and you were feeling anxious about that was activated even things like that come to look even more important and meaningful and their and subjects would kind of cling to them in a way. So the probably the biggest thing that they found was that in terms of identity um, was that when people were feeling anxiety around their death, they their how do I say this? Like their boundaries, we used to call it in-group, out-group. So their in-group, meaning people of their nationality, their gender, their race. Um, we did it with college students. So even like Indiana University where I was versus Purdue, which is their rival. Uh, any kind of in-group like that was was really identified with super closely. And they were seen to be better, much better than the out-group. So... This leads to all kinds of not great things um, like stereotyping and prejudice and judgments of outgroups and, you know, all the stuff that we see out in the world, especially when countries are at war or religions are at war or whatever. Um, A real identification with this is who I am. This is something I'm a part of. Um, this is extremely, this identity is extremely meaningful to me. It means something. It has a purpose. It's important. Versus when people didn't have those same people, when they didn't have death activated, you know, there's still some of that, perhaps. I'm sure there is, but but less so. So they could see that the the role of being anxious about your death, how all of those things kind of went through the roof. Now, this makes a lot of sense, right? Because our identities, these identities that our mind creates, this sense of me, I'm a me and I'm, I matter and I exist and I'm separate and this is who I am and all of that. To a mind anyway, to a brain, like there's a real sense of 
solidity and safety in that. So it makes perfect sense that when someone was thinking about someday not existing, their mind would double down on on their existence right this minute and add all of this to it in a way. You know, like everything, there, there's a lot that I'm I'm forgetting or just not mentioning, but a lot around purpose and self-esteem and meaning and wanting to leave a legacy and and that type of thing, in addition to the stereotypes and in-group bias and all of that. But you can see, like, I, I think it makes perfect sense when we feel that level of anxiety. And I don't even know that it has to be around death. I think we just feel uneasy, period. We just feel stressed or caught up in thought, period. And that is the same thing, really, as feeling separate. When we feel separate, we feel stress. And when we feel stressed, we feel more separate. And when we feel more stress and therefore more separate, we look, our mind looks to identify, it looks to put a stake in the ground to say, this is who I am and this is what's real and this is what's meaningful and this is what's solid and this is me. I mean, really what it just keeps saying over and over is this is me, this is me. Which is really pretty fascinating. Now, if we take it away from the way that the average person thinks about death, which is I am a me, I am a separate me, I have a body and all of this is going to end and I'm just going to be buried in the ground someday or whatever. Maybe that's not the average person's uh, take on it. But, you know, when we take it out of that more physical, separate self death thing, and we even just look at what I know many of you all are, are noticing is like, hey, is there really even a me? Like there's a death happening, it's not a real death because I would say there never was a separate you, but we sure thought there was. We lived in the dream of that, exclusively in the dream of that for a good chunk of time. Maybe still do, doesn't matter. I don't think there's a clean line there, but for a good chunk of time for all of us, that looks just looked like an absolute, you can't deny it fact. It just is what it is. There's a me here. And And so even if you aren't afraid of your physical death or that's not something that's on your mind much or the end of this life, it's like even just these identities being questioned, which, you know, if, if we're in this conversation, for sure, identities are being questioned. All of that is looking less and less real It's really fascinating. It kind of helps it helps it make sense when when that feels really hard. And when sometimes our mind and everything in our brain just clings to what it knows. And it it will, you know, we start to kind of lean into some of these things and say, wow, maybe there is no me. And maybe this this self was always just a thought. And maybe this is really how it's always been. And I think anyone who's done that to any degree can can notice, yeah, there's a real like uh, pushback that comes from the mind sometimes. Like, and it shows up in so many different ways. I mean, it can show up as just this major fear barrier. It can show up as, um, as like, no, can't go there or or anger. It can show up as distraction. It can show up, you know, like when you start to get curious about this stuff, all of a sudden I 
talked with someone who this was the case for her. She was super curious about this stuff on the surface, but she said she'd never finish a book about it. She'd get into it or even like a video sometimes. She'd get into it and then suddenly distracted. Now, she might call that her ADHD or her, you know, distraction tendency or whatever. And maybe it is. I mean, who knows, right? But that kind of sounds like something a mind would do also <laughs> when the mind is like, oh, wait a minute, my, my, they're about to see through this, you know, let me take you over here. This is boring now. This isn't exciting anymore. So there's so many ways from distraction to anger to fear that, that the mind will come up when these identities are shifting or being seen through a little bit and try to pull you back in. Try to keep that solidity, keep that, keep that sense of me solid and feeling clear um, and that sense of not me. I'm me and they're them. And all of that can get stronger and stronger as we're starting to see through any of this, just like apparently it does, you know, when you're faced with your own mortality. So just thinking about it kind of from that wider lens and, and, waking up to the fact that there is no real you um, led me to kind of revisit this a little bit. And I just thought it was really, uh, really interesting, really interesting to look at in that light. I was um, sharing with some people recently that I guess as part of this, um, I talked about it in the Welcoming What Arises class and, and podcasts, um, as this sense of just like leaning in and feeling whatever is here right this second, like right now, this is all there is. This is the way in. This is what wants to be seen and felt. Um, I always think of it as this sense of like, bring it on. I'll feel anything. I know it's safe. I, it, I might not know it in the moment. I might not feel it in the moment. But I absolutely know that anything that's arising is safe. It's here to be seen. It's it's not threatening anything. It's not real because it's moving and changing all the time. And it cannot possibly, because it's not real, it cannot threaten anything that is real. So, um, but but I'm still human. So there's still leaning in and feeling and all of that to be done and maybe will be forever to some degree. Um, but it has this real feeling for me when I'm just meditating on it or just playing with it of, of like, bring it on, bring it on. So I was recently kind of in in this state of just like, okay, just show me, bring it on. I'm willing to feel anything to know truth at any cost, any personal cost to me. I'm, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. I want to know what's true more than I want to be comfortable, more than I want anything for this quote-unquote me, um, including looking at feeling at my own death, anything, right? So in the spirit of that, like like shortly after I was doing a lot of that, I started having recurring nightmares about my kid, really horrible things happening to my kids. They were very detailed, very like emotional nightmares, right? So that made sense because I just asked for it. <laughs> I just said, show me where I'm still attached, basically. And life showed me where I was still attached. You know, you're not okay with this, are you? So, so, so I'm doing what I can to become okay with this. And, and that's not a great way of saying it. It's not like I'm trying to be okay with it, but 
I can feel that. I can feel it as a nightmare. I can feel it as a thought. I can feel it as a worry. I can feel anything that shows up. And if that were a circumstance someday, I could feel it then too. So there's there's just this this real sense of like, okay, um, I want to feel anything. So just show me what's there to feel, what's in the way and what's still being attached to, what's what, where they're still clinging. And then life just showed me that perfectly. And I think that's so much in line with kind of this, you know, it's like, if there is no me, there, everything is one, everything is okay. None of this is as it looks. None of this is as it really appears. Then what? And, and, this is then what, in my case, in this particular instance, right? Like then, then the mind said, okay, well, here's what, like, and I could feel the clinging to that and the, I don't want that and, and all of that. And, and I think it's just such a fascinating practice. No, I'm not suggesting everyone do that. You do not, you know, if, if that appeals to you, you'll know and you'll do it. Um, if that, if it does not appeal to you to lean into, images and thoughts of horrible things happening to your children, then don't do it. No big deal. But but that's just kind of what came up for me. But it it really reminded me of kind of this topic. And it's like, wow, yeah, there's this real leaning into it's it's all part of the story. The all of these identities is my children, the their those identities, that's thought, that's made up that they're in any way, shape, or form mine or have anything to do with me or that, and really it's not even about that. I mean, really all that was experienced was thoughts and feelings and images and those aren't mine or me either. But you could feel when you lean into this, you can feel the mind just grabbing for it back. And I've felt this throughout this whole process, whatever that means, for a long time now, like as soon as there's this opening and letting go and this, um, I don't know, expansion or whatever, there will often be a, a counterforce, a tendency of the, you feel the mind and the brain do exactly what terror management theory is saying it will do. Saying, wait a minute, reel this in, put something in the ground. What's real here? What's solid? Where are you? Who are you? Who are your people? Who are not your people? I mean, it just happens in an instant. So I think that's really awesome to see. And the more we know that that's just this protective body-mind thing that happens, this evolutionary, you know, so many advantages to that in an evolutionary sense, um, then, then, you know, we can just ride it out. It doesn't have to, doesn't have to mean anything or be a big deal. I also think these terror management theory findings are interesting just in a different at a different level, maybe like kind of in light of how um, a lot of things like that talk to a separate self, like like the three principles, for example, how it would talk about state of mind, right? State of mind was was a big deal. So when you're in a nice state of mind, things look a particular way, and when you have a lot on your mind, or however we might say that, when you when you're in a lot of thinking or you're identified with thought and all of that, um, then everything looks totally different. And that's really all this is saying is it's like, wow, when you're in in a lot of thinking, so to speak, or you have a lot on your mind and you're very identified with it, then 
your brain, just even your brain, besides like mind and identity and all of that, your brain is looking for shortcuts. And this was something that I did study myself in graduate school a lot, that when people were under a cognitive load, meaning in our case, we would often tell them they have to memorize some very long number. It'd be like a nine digit number or something. And they'd have to keep these nine digits in mind. And then we'd give them other tasks to do. So having to remember nine digits creates what we call a cognitive load. Their mind is very busy. Um, And you can do that with emotion too, obviously, just having a lot on your mind or being stressed out. That's all cognitive load. And then it affects how you do other tasks. So we could look more at kind of more cognition stuff there. But but what we found all the time was that under cognitive load, and many people found this, under cognitive load, we also stereotype more. We also cling to our in-groups more. We, We make really snap judgments that are not accurate, but they're efficient like a stereotype, right? A stereotype is not accurate of the vast majority of people, almost almost no one, or maybe it's not accurate of anyone, but, but it's efficient. And it's kind of right enough, a portion enough, a portion of the time enough, at least that's the, that's the logic or the kind of the reasoning of the mind behind it. Like, oh, it's close enough. It's going to describe enough people close enough. So, and it's efficient and it saves time and it gives us a shortcut so we'll take it. So I think just in in light of that too, it's really interesting, you know, that when we have a lot on our mind, we just cling to an identity more. We just judge other people more. We make these harsh judgments. It, we aren't doing it. The brain is doing it. The mind is doing it. It feels protective. It's efficient. It gives us less to worry about, less to think about. And really importantly, it helps us feel safe. And that's kind of weird. I mean, that's something that I think gets to begin to shift. But the whole thing behind terror management theory is that our identity somehow in our past and the meaning and all of that somehow feels safe. It feels secure. It gives us something to hold on to. And it does. But when you're ready to let go of that, you get to see that there's ultimate safety, real safety, like safety is not even a concept beyond an identity. So safety is a concept when you are a separate you because you, now you're in dualistic land. You can be safe or you can be unsafe and you can be safe or unsafe and Johnny can be safe or unsafe. So it's a real important issue when you're a you. Beyond that, it's not. It's not even it's not even a thing. In the absolute, there's no such thing as safety. There's no such thing as anything, really. So so that's kind of fascinating to see. You know, when we're in thought, all of this stuff looks and feels very safe. But that doesn't mean cling to it more and stereotype everybody and and favor your own group and, uh, you know, tell the story of your upbringing and your family and your identity all the time so you can feel safe. No, it means, hey, you're, you're living in a really tiny little story here. And in that story, you need to do all kinds of things to try to feel safe. You need to manage your terror of, of the little you dying someday and all kinds of other bad things happening. But beyond that story, none of that exists. And beyond that story is is right here. I mean, that's not like snow pie in the sky thing. It's like when you're not actively thinking and believing all those thoughts, you're beyond that story. It's right here, right now, all the time. So ultimately, I mean, we don't die. 
and we weren't born. I would say there's a, I don't know, but how it looks to me in this moment is there's a, there's a story that appears to have been born and appears to die at a certain time, a dream that we get so super identified with for a period of non-existent time. And in that, there's a lot of terror to manage. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of everything, and it's beautiful and wonderful. But ultimately, all that kind of quote-unquote dies is that dream, is that story. The story is seen to be not the case. And that doesn't coincide with your, with your body's death necessarily. For many people, it does. When the I believe anyway, when the body dies, that's when we kind of see the truth. But obviously, if you're listening to this, you've seen some truth already. It doesn't have to, you don't have to wait till the body dies. Those identities can be seen. They don't die because they never really were, but they can be seen as the dream way before the physical death of your body. And you know, when you don't die, when you were never born and you don't die, there's just not a whole lot of terror there that, that needs to be managed. Things just get to look really, really different. Identities get to come into play, be felt and experienced. And, and sometimes even we cling to them and we feel very attached to them and we, and we really love them in a way. And sometimes there is some, like I said, fear and anger and real grieving when we see that those identities never were. But that's okay. Those are all feelings that, that people move through just fine, that we're designed to feel and move through. And we don't need to, like when you notice the mind snapping back and saying, no, what's real? What's solid? What do I know? Who am I? Because that's what it will do. When you notice that, you can just see that as what's happening also. And it's just a, a beautiful thing that is very protective or very uh, adaptive in many ways, but that we also can kind of start to outgrow. If you're curious to see what could shift for you in just two weeks, please join me and my change coaches for a special two-week course called 14 Days of Change. Each day for 14 days, you'll receive a short audio lesson that points you toward getting out of your own way. These 14 pointers are the essence of what I've seen to be most helpful to aid you in stepping into a brand new way of seeing who you are and how the world around you is your own projection. We'll also have four group coaching calls during the 14 days of change, one every few days so that you can ask questions and get as much personal support as you need. 14 days of change begins August 14th. Go to dramiejohnson.com slash 14 days to register. 